0: From KIOS in Omaha and Exarbin Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. As we approach election season again, with mail-in ballots being mailed out next month, we're continuing to try to get insight from the people who want to represent you in the federal government. On today's show, I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Alicia Shelton.
1: Well, I don't think we have to look at what, what Germany did, but I do think, you know, we were the first to put a man on the moon. I think it is time for us to step our game up. We're always number one. So when anybody does anything, don't we do it better?
0: Shelton discusses her life forging her own path and having to find unique solutions to practical problems, including a particularly messy Senate race this year against Democratic primary winner Chris Janicek and Republican incumbent Ben Sass. Stick around for my conversation with Alicia Shelton right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I have a conversation with U.S. Senate candidate Alicia Shelton. Shelton is endorsed by the Nebraska Democratic Party, following a controversial series of events with primary winner Chris Janicek. Though Janicek is still in the race as of the recording of this episode, a local movement has started, shepherded by the Democratic Party and fellow primary challenger Angie Phillips, to replace Janicek with my guest today, Alicia Shelton, as the Democratic challenger to sitting incumbent Ben Sass. I talked with Sheldon about her upbringing and her relationship with our political system, including her vision for America and how she's navigating the messy center race she finds herself in. We spoke via Zoom. How are you these days in these increasingly weird, strange, scary times that we're living in?
1: Right? Like, I don't know if we call this our new normal, um, but I'm very concerned. I have been checking on Everybody that I know, when I call voters, I'm asking them how they're doing. I'm trying to be prepared with resources, like no being aware of pantries, for instance, and obviously in running for an office, you follow what's going on federally, well, for the office that you're running for. And so federally, I'm also looking at that. And I, this week has been difficult in hearing all of the families who are impacted in Nebraska for not having the additional six hundred dollar payment because it's hitting them this week, uh, and so that has been a large amount of listening, active listening, and sharing resources to mental health therapy when that's what they want. And so that's been interesting. I'm sh- I'm not sure if another candidate, you know, has done that, but and with my mental health role, I just cannot. It's not in me to neglect a neighbor anyway, and so this week hearing all of that. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot to take on.
0: Well, and you've just, I mean, you've gone through, it's been kind of an interesting primary and then the the current, you know, the general election has been incredibly strange. It's not the normal way that things go. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, I mean, whether we're talking about the Janicex situation or whether we're talking about the fact that everything has to be online, it's got to just be so much weird, unexpected stress, right?
1: You know, I am the person that's always busy and always kind of, go with the flow. And so being a fourth of a sibling of, you know, eight, I have eight siblings. My mom, well, seven siblings. My mother has eight children and I am the fourth of eight. And so I don't know what normal is. (laughs) So this is really, it's interesting because I'm, I was basically thinking, of course, when I run for an office, a pandemic happens, right? Not to say that I'm the reason for the pandemic, but (laughs) I feel that in my life, I have had to do things in the non-traditional method that it just seems to always flow that way. And so I'm glad that I intend to stay flexible. I don't know if that was an intention in the beginning. Now it's a gift. I'm very glad that I have. And I learned a great deal of running for an office this was my first time running and so I was just very excited to be a sponge and absorb and talk to as many people as I could and listen to as many Nebraskans as I can and all of that and so to me it was magical it was a magical moment
0: well let's let's go back to the very beginning then so I mean are are you from Nebraska originally
1: So I'm originally from Staten Island, New York. Okay. Uh, My parents divorced and my mother moved here because her mother is here and Mm. she has had eight children. And so uh, we came out here. My little brother was two weeks old when we actually made the move to nebraska and so obviously my mother needed the help i was 12 years old and then i went to omaha burke high school i did middle school here and then i attended xavier university in louisiana and came back and so omaha is home
0: what was it like growing up here with all your siblings and all the (laughs) i'm sure some family drama right what was that like
1: I'm not sure. We are a very, very close family. And so I talk to my siblings. I talk to my mom almost every day. My mom's a nurse and she is on the front lines, obviously. So that's changed a bit in the pandemic uh, because when people have symptoms of COVID, they cannot come into work. And so she is working longer shifts than she typically has worked. But I talked to my siblings, most of them daily, if not weekly. And so it was a large amount of fun. We didn't have much, we, we grew up in poverty. We lived in what they called the projects off of um, 30th and Parker, we lived in Pleasant View East. However, we did not, you know, other, we had food at times, it was a stretch but we had each other. And so my mom basically taught us that, you know, we stick together, whatever we have, it's okay to share. And if we share and go through life together, we can achieve anything. And I feel that I'm very successful simply because of the mindset that I got and the values that I received from my family.
0: So when you were a kid and you're thinking about what the future might look like and how you might achieve, did you anticipate turning into a Senate race or, you know?
1: Absolutely not. Right and the funny thing is that everyone that I have spoken to when I, I when you run for an office and it's time to ask for dollars, right? They always tell you to start within your network. And so I got to have these amazing conversation with my family members that were basically telling me, I knew it was a matter of time and I've just been waiting for you. And I'm like, how did you know? I didn't know this was going to happen, uh, but I have always been someone who has spoke up against injustice. I am the girl who has stood up to the bully. I did not ever feel that it was okay for anyone to be isolated. And that's largely the reason I became a mental health therapist, because I felt that if you could give one person hope, they can change the world. And so I've always loved to motivate individuals and, you know, stand up for what was right. And so I think I naturally fell into it. But as a little girl, I definitely was not. Saying, oh, I want to be a senator when I grow up. It was more like, I want to go to Disney World. And, <laughs> I, you know, I want to have tea time and all those magical things.
0: So when you were a kid, though, I mean, where did that sense of justice come from? I and mean, what, what were you seeing? What was it that was inspiring you to sort of develop those skills?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. So my father is someone who has always been an activist and a researcher. And so my father became vegan when he was 18 years old. That was not cool. Like he's just now getting into his 60s. And so back then, many people, I guess, didn't follow that and and understand the food industry. Uh, But my father is someone, my parents were pregnant with me and they traveled to Washington DC from New York to stand and bear witness and be part of the protest to make Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a holiday. And my dad just has always fed me information. I remember even being in kindergarten and having a discussion with a friend of mine that, you know, black who said black people cannot be ice skaters, because I was acting like I was a figure skater on the playground. And they said, well, what are you doing? Like, Black people can't do that. And I said, wait a minute. Do you not know who Debbie Thomas is? I watch it with my daddy every Saturday. It comes on this channel, right? Like, I loved figure skating. And when I told my dad about that situation, he said, good job, baby girl. That's what you do. You stand up. You never let anyone, you know, belittle anybody. And so my dad always talked to me like I was an adult and always fed knowledge into me and he is definitely that the person i think i kind of have absorbed in this moment i have never seen him stand for any injustice and so i have him to to thank for teaching me my history as an african american and american what that looks like and the value of speak in
0: our mind and so I mean he was he he's sort of been politically involved it sounds like so I mean was that something where maybe as you got older you started to get a sense that like you'd want to be following in the footsteps in some way because it it's not what you studied in college right so I mean what was the what was your relationship as you sort of got older and started to think about realistic futures for yourself
1: Well, when I, as I was, so I attended Xavier University of Louisiana, which is a historically black college. That Mm -hmm. was the first place I ever felt that I was treated equally. And I did not know until I was in that environment. Right. And I was not the smartest black girl in the room. I did. I wasn't labeled. I didn't have people um, ask me silly questions about why aren't black people in AP biology, for example. Uh, And so for me, I felt that I was able to just be myself. And in being myself, I started learning about disparities and what was happening in New Orleans. And specifically, it was always tied to low socioeconomic status. uh, And it tended to be minorities that were in these situations. And so I started volunteering. And then in volunteering, I became very attracted to Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And when I graduated, I came back to Omaha and I ended up joining the sorority. And one of the focuses of Delta Sigma Theta is voter registration and political action. So I started uh, registering people to vote. I started doing letter writing parties. I started teaching people, you know, your elected official, whether you voted for them or not, they are still your elected official. They work for you in your district. And this is how you write letters. And this is why you should care about this bill. And this is what the legislature does. And we are unique because we have a unicameral. And so there was so much education that I started doing. I just kind of got into this flow where I got sick and tired of not being heard. Um, And again, I grew up as this woman who, learn to speak your mind and that you can compromise in any situation and we can work together because we are Americans and all of us want life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and we want that American dream and so to not see that happen even right now in the wake of this pandemic has been very disappointing. Uh, because that's what I was, I grew up thinking my parents compromised with my name. And that's a magical story. Like my dad wanted to name me Aaliyah. My mother wanted to name me Aisha. They put that together and they got Alicia. I think that's a magical compromise. And that's kind of the story that I definitely have tried to factor into every area of my life. And so when I got to that level, that's what kind of sparked it. Uh, the straw that broke the camel's back for me was actually going to D.C. and not being able to meet with Senator Sass. Uh, I reached out to Senator Sass, Senator Fisher, and both of them, (laughs) I respect Deb Fisher very much for the simple fact that she said, I'm a Republican, I can schedule time to meet with you, but it'll probably be an intern and I probably won't listen to what you have to say. And at first I thought, wow, I can't believe she said that to me. Then I was like, I appreciate her for not wasting my time. At least you're a straight shooter. At least you said... I likely will not listen to you, right? I mean, I've been added to her mailing list already because Mm -hmm. of all my emails and questions. So that was good to know. Uh, But when you make an appointment with someone and you think I'm going to be early, I'm going to be heard and you get there and you confirm it and it's an intern who is really not even listening to what you have to say and not even from Nebraska and not even aware of various issues in Nebraska, it gets to a point where you just get sick and tired of that. And you, you do something about it.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with Alicia Shelton who is running to represent Nebraska in the U S Senate. I, yeah, I did a Senate internship when I was in grad school and what I saw on the inside was the system that they have set up, is all issues can get, I don't know if everyone does it that way, but the the system that I was seeing was no matter how complicated an issue or a message was, it gets, you know, shortened down to like four words and then that goes in and then there's a tally of, Oh, this many people think, you know, don't vote yes on whatever. Uh, and so it just felt like the, the mechanism for listening to your constituents got so oversimplified. And I I guess that is something that I'm curious what you think about because you seem to have both an optimism in the system or a belief that the system can be improved. But then at the same time, a lot of people, once they actually see how it works, lose some of that optimism or they start to get, uh, I don't know if it's quite nihilistic about it, but they're you know, they really pessimistic that you know it can be reformed in a way that favors constituencies. So people can actually hear what their constituents want and then enact that. So it's, I don't know. Have you been able to stay optimistic and stay with your sort of passion that if you get into the system. It's not going to, I don't know whether it's going to be corrupting or sort of mute out the optimism you have and the ideas you have. How do you stay optimistic in this, in this climate and the the way it's been probably throughout your whole life?
1: Yeah. I simply don't believe that any system works for me. (laughs) I just create my own system. And I think that honestly, we are in a magical time where everybody is questioning, do we need to do this the way that we are currently doing this? I have always been a philosopher at heart. Like, I want to know why. (laughs) Why do we have to do it this way? Who is it serving when we do it this way? Who are we leaving out? Like, can I create something new? And so one of the things that I heard largely when I was on the campaign trail from people here in Nebraska, they basically were telling me, I cannot believe you're actually listening to me. Like, you are actually listening and asking me questions. When I tell you that, you know, my daughter had to spend four months in the NICU, you are asking me questions about the hospital and would this be a solution? And no one has ever done that for me. And I was just appalled because I'm like, well, this is what I would want to be done. But honestly, I don't know four words, like taking an issue down to four words. How do I know what that means?
0: Right. I
1: don't know anything from that. And I have this desire to seek knowledge. I'm a great researcher. That's what we do as mental health therapists. Like you have to look at research. You have to look at trends. You have to understand what this perspective is like from this person's point of view. If I can't see that, I can't make a decision. Mm -hmm. And the best way for me to see that and understand that is to honestly hear what the constituents are saying. And so I would create my own system. I don't intend to learn from anybody who has currently been doing it, no disrespect to the system that they have created, but I have always thought that in any, in any in anything that I do, uh, many of my coworkers call me rainbows and butterflies. They're like, oh, Alicia's always so optimistic and you know she will Alicia-fy this event i plan to alicia the senate and so i have not given up on america america has not always loved me or my people or people who look like me and we are still here we are still working to have a system where everyone feels the same where everyone feels equal this is on the cusp of the anniversary of the voting rights act when we are still dealing with voter suppression so there is so much work that can be done and as long as there is work that can be done as long as people are on the earth and as long as i have breath in my body i will find something to do. And I will be motivated by something and I will put that into action.
0: Your approach of finding solutions based on specific problems, it does feel very practical. It feels very real world. Uh, some, you know, some of the politicians I talked to, you know, they were much more interested in sort of the abstract ideas of, you know, governmental philosophy rather than specific problem and solution and I think uh, you know Ben Sass is kind of in that category to some extent where he you know seems to want to be more of a public intellectual when he does talk about various issues it seems like he's aspiring more for that William F Buckley sort of role as opposed to someone who's just going to talk very specifically about an issue and a solution and I wonder how you uh, go up against the go- the some of the GOP ways of looking at things which is this philosophy that Big government is bad. Federal government is bad in general, which then seems to sort of allow for this idea that if what they're doing is not working, that's because big government is bad, as opposed to the specific candidate is not doing what they should be doing, or the Senate could do more, but government's bad. So that's the problem, really. Uh, And I guess what I'm asking is the terms of that when you're up against it seem difficult to navigate because it's both like they have solutions on one side, but also a lack of belief in government is kind of difficult to argue against when, you know, you're in a Senate race. So, I mean, I guess, how do you see, what do you see the role of government being?
1: Well, um, number one, I see government as policies and procedures, right? And I just see it in the hub that, our country is built on this foundation of laws and policies and procedures. However, there are some like gaps in these laws and policies and procedures, and it's like got some cracks in it because it does not work for everyone. It doesn't keep everyone standing. Our foundation is breaking and crumbling, and this pandemic has exposed it, exposed all of the weaknesses that we have had in this foundation for years and years and years. And so I look at it in the aspect of this. When I get down to policies and procedures, I have to look look at the facts tied behind those policies and procedures. And so if Senator Sass truly cared about Nebraskans and making a difference with his historian background, I would have expected some bills in this moment or some support even voting for um, unemployment benefits. He was totally 100% against the additional $600. And so when it comes down to Um, the policy, how many Nebraskans is this policy helping? If it is not helping us, again, this is philosophy. (laughs) Like If it's not helping us, if it is not working, then what are we doing? And if you look at his voting record, he is so great at showboating and calling something out and saying this isn't right. But then he votes right along with it. (laughs) Like, where is your moral compass? I am tired of people taking the humanity out of politicians. You are also a human. You have children, you have a wife, you have a family, I have a family, we all come from someone. In order for this government to work for all people, all people have to be involved in making these laws. And if they cannot come to the table, at least all people have to be in mind. You have to be aware of what are the issues with the constituents in your state. And I do not feel that he has an awareness.
0: So let's continue then the story. So when was the moment when you started to even consider uh, politics or was it, was this run the first time that you considered running for something?
1: Absolutely. Yes. So I have been in leadership positions. I have sat on boards. And so I am one of those people in the very beginning where I was not I never put my name in the hat people I always get a nudge of individuals saying you would be great or it's time for you Even in my career. It's time for you to be a director. It's time for you to be a manager I don't want to be no no. No, (laughs) I like my schedule. I'm comfortable right here No, it's time for you to take this on and so and standing up and representing people and organizations and on boards and um Asking for the facts and the details regarding patients and advocating for patients with insurance companies and with other doctors I kind of got into this habit of again speaking out and uh, Putting myself in their shoes and advocating and saying what would I want this to look like? and so and moving and doing these letter writing parties, it's extremely disappointing to give individuals hope and say, just contact your elected officials or this is what we're going to do, or "Go, let's let's ride to Lincoln and testify on this bill and then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. You get to a level where you're just like, what do we do next? How do we change this system? And so the best way for me to change the system is to be the change in the system that I want to see. And that's what I did in this run. Specifically, uh, I was working in Winnebago, Nebraska. There's just so many factors that influenced me. And I was counseling in, the, in Winnebago on the reservation and still doing some work um, here, like on the weekends for youth that needed it because sometimes people have struggled finding a person to counsel adolescents and children. And I saw the pattern that I had across the state was children were becoming increasingly afraid of these mass shootings, uh, to the point where they didn't wanna go to soccer meets, um, River City Roundup, um, all these things that we did as children that I never even considered that maybe my safety would be compromised. And so as a youth, we lived in, um, I stated earlier the projects off of 30th and Parker, I remember vividly my first experience with gunshots. I remember my brother telling me, hey, those aren't fireworks. You're like, get down. This is gunshots. Get under the table. I remember the fear that I had. And what that did was it pushed me into school. I always wanted to be involved in school. I did every sport that I could, every activity I could, because home did not, that neighborhood was not a safe place for me. Well, now the place that was safe for me is not safe for many of our children. And now it's in a different aspect with COVID-19. And so in counseling all of these individuals and seeing that, gosh, every shooting, every time something happens, why, why can't we do something? And in 2018, there was a bill that two senators introduced on the U S Senate floor it was called the wolf act with an extra F. And this bill uh, was introduced three days after a dog died on a United airlines flight. I'm not sure if you remember it. It was a Frenchie dog. It died on a United airlines fl- flight because the flight attendant forced the owner to put the dog in the overhead bin so this was a bill for FAA regulations because they said it was important that no other animals died on on an aircraft and in that moment my mind just was blown I was blown away because what about our children (laughs) should shouldn't shouldn't they be safe after Sandy Hook my heart broke I definitely thought our country was going to take a turn and get something done and I'm not, I'm not satisfied <laughs> and I am seeing people hurt. And I am a gun owner as well. And so I want my rights. I own two guns for my own personal safety, for my own reasons. I don't want someone to take my guns, but I also would like to know that we have measures in place to protect our children and women that are in domestic violence situations or men that are in domestic violence situations, I would love to know that we can make sure that people are safe.
0: I'm talking with Alicia Shelton, challenger to sitting Senator Ben Sass. Stick around after the break for more of our conversation right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. Today I'm talking with Alicia Sheldon, who's currently challenging Republican Senator Ben Sass to represent Nebraska in the United States Senate. So when when was that?
1: Yep. So um, the moment that made me remember it is when we had the El Paso shooting, and then the next day we had the shooting in Ohio. Uh, the next day, I saw that the Omaha World Herald released how much money each candidate takes from the NRA, and I saw the amount of total, like it was direct and indirect money from the NRA, and I saw how much Senator Sass had, and I said, that's it. I'm going to get a team together. And I started working that very next day.
0: You have enough of a drive to believe in yourself, but at the same time, just the logistics of starting a Senate campaign must be kind of daunting and scary. Right. So like, just like, all right, that's a lot to figure out. And then you're in Nebraska. So it's kind of an uphill struggle to take down an incumbent Republican, no matter who they are. So what was your strategy?
1: Uh, So again, my strategy was build a system that I have no idea what it is, like create it from me, right? Like building a system. And this is interesting to say, because yes, I know that there are people who have run for office before. However, I don't have, there's not a black woman available that I could talk to and say, what is it like running for US Senate in Nebraska? What do I need to be prepared for? Uh, But I was able to say, How do I want to work? Who's the candidate that I want to be? Because I want to be as true and as transparent to myself as possible. So what I did was I looked for people that I knew were good and running campaigns or or, um, in individuals in my circles who maybe were aware of me and know my personality and my drive and my determination and so for me it was more important to build a high-performing team just like I would with any business um, that could understand the factors the deadlines what it takes and had a level a commitment level that was equal or greater than mine. And I don't believe that anybody was greater. You know, I feel like the candidate is always working. You're always doing the work. But that could just be Alicia as well. Like I had a point where I was on very, very little sleep because I just, my mind was running and I wanted to get all my notes out and I wanted to make sure that we were focusing on the goal. So I just built a high-performing team of individuals that were able to relate, that could do the job that I we intended to do Uh, that believed that we could make this happen and we went with it.
0: Uh, I know I actually wrote the quote down here because I want to get it right. So when SAS was running in 2013, one of his quotes to the World Herald was, if Obamacare lives, America as we know it will die. Uh, I assume with your background, you probably have exposure to healthcare and what's working, what's not working about the current system. Where do you see things going as far as what would be improvements to healthcare or what would you propose?
1: Oh, my gosh that quote okay so uh it's interesting how obamacare will you know it's just interesting to see that he has not produced any type of health care in substitution like what happened to the repeal or replace and so yeah let me go back to your question okay. what would i love to see I would love to see a healthcare system where individuals who were not working, um, who have a low income, are able to still be seen by the doctor. I would love to see a healthcare system that does not give the government in its totality the power to uh, proceed and to make decisions above doctors. I would like to see us uphold the people in this field, the experts, and support them And cover anything that says that it's medically necessary. And so that's my issue that I have with uh, Medicaid for all. The fact that we put the hands in the agency and the government into um, Medicare instead of putting the power into the doctors, into the dentists people who are saying this is medically necessary because we are doing this (laughs) right like this is the procedure Um, and so it is very important to me I have been a patient advocate at Charles Drew Health Center I did that while going in grad school I was an employment first worker which is the welfare to work program and so I worked with helping people find jobs and receiving ADC I have seen so many gaps that I can't just talk about healthcare because we also have issues with our welfare system. Uh, People have been receiving $293 for one child for over 15 years now. (laughs) How does that support you? One payment of $293 a month. And so there's so much work that we have to do. I look at it as whole person care. And so until we can have mental health therapists one at least one person working in all 93 counties until we can have access to health care and these same counties to expert care should we need an eye doctor you know that's considered a specialist until we can ensure that every town has access to adequate services um i'm not going to be satisfied and that is something that i'm going to be working for um and so that's that's my goal To have um, the Affordable Care Act is something that's in existence now. I support how it was presented before people started. You know, I feel like uh, President Obama said, hey, I have this idea. And then we kind of started pulling off layers and adding and substituting and moving it around, even for it to pass initially under his presidency. And so I'm going back to supporting the public option when it was very first introduced.
0: Well, and it does seem like uh, coronavirus has sort of changed some of the tunes as far as Republicans and Democrats on health care. Do you see a lot of shifts in the people you're talking to who would be your constituents on health care and what they're asking for?
1: I have seen, actually, even during the campaign trail uh, with our governor blocking the expansion of Medicaid that we voted on in 2018, many individuals, every person I spoke to had an issue with health care not being readily available every individual. Um, and so I have been seeing it more so now with healthcare and the economy related to jobs. And so having conversations with individuals who are furloughed and understanding that their job doesn't know when they, when they, if they are going to come back or not. Uh, but if you have a single parent that is furloughed, how are they supposed to support their children with $300 a week?
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Alicia Shelton challenger to Ben Sass to represent Nebraska in the United States Senate. And I, I thought it was interesting when you talked about guns before. So, I mean, as a gun owner, I guess the stereotype is that Democrats don't own guns. They don't believe anyone should own guns. But it sounds like you've got a more nuanced uh, situation with your own relationship as far as that goes. So what do you propose or what, do you, what would you change about the current system in order to make gun ownership safer for everybody?
1: So I think that we need to look at what Germany did with smart guns. Number one, because if you look at the research, there is much research that says that adolescents get their guns from people they know. And so if you look at the school shootings, if you look at the mass shootings, if you look at the age, it's very easy for individuals, especially if they know they've maybe been practicing how to utilize this gun, then they can go to their grandparents' house and get a gun. Here in Von Mar, the individual, I mean, sorry, here in Omaha, the individual who shot in Von Mar, Robbie, that was his father's gun. A few years later, we had an individual who bought a gun to Miller North, I believe it was, and that was his father's gun. His father was a police officer. And so if we can put some type of mechanism in place, I don't think that there is a gun owner that takes a gun and says, I don't know the power of this thing. I think all of us want to make our guns safe, right? I have a gun safe. Nobody in my house knows where it's at. Um, I have a a pin for it, you know, that I put in like a four digit pin, uh, but I and I keep everything separate. I keep the gun locked in there and I keep my bullets in another place. However, if somebody broke into my house and took that information or took that gun and found the bullets, or even if they just tucked the gun case without the bullets, I would be so nervous and so scared that, oh my God, what if they kill someone with this, right? I want to do everything I can to protect them. And so if we had a smart gun where we had to have our fingerprint, in order to pull the trigger, trigger, I need my fingerprint or my face to unlock my phone. I would love to do something like that to pull the trigger on a gun. And so I think that we have to start looking at doing updates with the technology that we are doing. We are updating cars faster than we are updating guns. Um, that's the very first thing that I would say is necessary. The other thing is, when I got my gun permit in Nebraska, um, the only I asked them what they checked for because, you know, I'm, I'm a curious person, like like I said, philosopher. And they said the only thing that we put your name in a system to see is if anybody has a protection order out against you. And I said, "Well, that's it." And they said, "Yeah, like if somebody has a protection order out against you, I mean, you can't be a felon, but, you know, you've never been arrested, but that's not an issue for you, but we just look to make sure no one has a protection order out against you. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. Like I had somebody when I was a provisional therapist who had four suicide attempts, went and purchased a gun, got a gun permit. Um, And I called the sheriff's department and said, why did you do this thing? (laughs) Did you not know? She is highly, highly suicidal and homicidal. And they said, oh, well, we just, you know, she didn't have anything. We don't, we don't have a system that does that, that detects that. And I could not believe that that doesn't exist. And so we have a list of individuals that go into treatment uh, when they are suicidal, uh, when they are homicidal, they have to have care. I don't think anybody who is unstable should be able to have access to a gun. Now, the studies do show that someone who um, is maybe like unstable, living on the street, like homeless, right? They don't have money to purchase a gun. However, we have millions of Americans who might lose their job, um, might have a death of a loved one, and all of a sudden they start thinking about using their own weapon on themselves. We need measures in place for that. And so I would support uh, legislation to help individuals Uh, who need who are not stable like if their family is saying that they are seeing the signs that would be wonderful to give them care to do a temporary removal or a hold on you know selling that person bullets and so I think that's the aspect that we need to look at this with with an inclusion of putting more mental health therapists into the school system because if we can flag this from the beginning, if we see that there, there are many, many signs. Just like there's many signs typically of someone who wants to take their own life, there are many, many signs with troubled individuals who might be planning uh, to do homicidal actions. And so we can see that very clearly if we can put the mental health therapist into the school, into these scenarios, and give uh, our children the best opportunity of survival, the best opportunity to just be here
0: now I mean when you have a complicated plan like that that you've clearly thought about there's a lot of details one of the things I assume when you're running a Senate campaign you have to deal with is in opposition when they're when somebody's running against you and they hear a plan that has any kind of gun control or inc- increased measures for gun safety, it gets oversimplified and turned into like, uh, you know, Alicia Sheldon hates guns or something like that. Right. So, I mean, how do you navigate just what you, I'm sure, you know, the political language is going to have to be when a lot of the nuance gets taken out of actual debate. There's not really a lot of public forums for conversations between you and who you're running against. So, I mean, just what's, I guess, I don't know if it's like a marketing planner, like how do you go about trying to make sure your message is actually heard?
1: Um, and so I really like to kind of gauge the room and, and understand who the questions that might come and just kind of prepare for that. And so that's just like kind of a debate strategy. Right. You definitely want to understand both sides to the coin. Um, the issue that I, it's always I shouldn't say the issue, but what always arises is individuals saying exactly that Alicia Shelton hates guns. And I'm like, how can I possibly hate guns if I have to? Mm-hmm. And I've had them for years. And usually they say, oh, you do? Like, really? Yeah, I do. I love to go to the gun range. When I was provisional, that was a provisional therapist learning. That was a great stress reliever for me. But as a single woman at the time, it was so important for me to be safe, especially I interned at the jail. And so I understood the criminal mindset. I also understood how many people are walking around in psychosis (laughs) in a day that many if you're not working with it, you would be, I think, shocked to know how many people are trying to manage a level of delusions and hallucinations. And so, for me, uh, the conversation always turns when I disclose that I actually have two weapons, uh, and I don't. And to me, that's like, well, how strong was your argument if the only thing you could say is that I hate guns? Well,
0: yeah, like I guess it was just kind its like that thing if you have to. Uh, Everyone is, it's like our entire system is set up to just have stereotype versus stereotype as opposed to human conversations. And so, I mean, you found it's been successful though. I mean, talking to people who maybe don't agree with you and your overall political beliefs.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, We've been able to, and then I had another person that was like, why would we want to do what Germany did and look at smart guns? And I said, well, I don't think we have to look at what, what Germany did, but I do think, you know, we were the first to put a man on the moon. I think it is time for us to step our game up we're always number one. So when anybody does anything, don't we do it better? (laughs) And so then they typically do the same thing. Well, yeah. And I guess (laughs) like we kind of go, so again, I'm just trying to understand what is your argument?
0: What are some of the other political goals you have?
1: So for us right now, broadband access is huge across our state. So this whole net neutrality, um, issue that had occurred, I think that was around 2018, I happened to be commuting back and forth to the Winnebago reservation. And one thing about rural Nebraska is it's not like Omaha, where I can put an address in my GPS, and it'll take me directly there. There are some dirt roads, (laughs) there are some streets that it might not pick up. Uh, It might tell me to turn somewhere where I actually cannot turn. And it's like the smaller the town is, the more I experience this. And so already it may have been an issue in me um, navigating through uh, our and with our rural neighbors in this area that's I'm it's not known to me, but also driving commuting the commute from Omaha to Winnebago is three hours round trip, so I'm spending three hours on a road with uh, very little Wi-Fi connection. Uh, if something happens to my car or if I you know have some flat tire, I can handle, but if it's some mechanical issue that I don't know, how am I going to call individuals? So I got to a point where I really started doing some heavy, heavy research on this. Now, what's interesting in the pandemic is that uh, for telehealth, like for instance, with mental health and telehealth, many physicians are utilizing telehealth um, for for their patient visits we are not able to sustain an appointment with the broadband access that we have with Wi-Fi with our rural neighbors. And so we are seeing that Zoom is more effective then the platform for our electronic health records, which I only can think is complex because maybe it has to be, you know, you can't, it has to be encrypted. There's our electronic health record holds many applications of patients. And uh, if you work at a clinic that is also integrative, you might have a mental health doctor, an eye doctor, you know, a GI doctor, you might have many people utilizing the same system. And so In the wake of this pandemic, we have individuals who have not even been able to successfully complete a session, a mental health session and an appointment. So that is definitely one of the things that we are focused on. We're also focused on building up uh, every community, whether it's urban or rural, and so we have so many individuals, small businesses that are not able to thrive in the wake, especially of this pandemic. Uh, Everybody wants their children to be able to, to grow up, go to college, yes, but come back or stay home or be here. Like, we want you to take over this business. We want you to be able to thrive. How do we do that when we are not even making it easy for our kids to go to school? There are no programs. Uh, we should be partnering with every clinic, with every specialty that we need to have. In 93 counties, we should be looking to say, hey, let's create a program where, you know, if you do your education at UNO and you, or UNL or wherever it needs to be, uh, you can come and uh, work here or we will, you know, do a loan repayment program. Our governor, our government has programs like these. We do this with HERSA. Why not make our rural neighbors HERSA sites? We can simply do that. And then we can get all these medical professions and mental health professions that we need to have in our rural environment. So there are really some clear steps that we can do to make sure that we have access. The same access I have in Omaha is in all 93 counties. Uh, so that's something that we are also focusing on. So the biggest issue is, of course, healthcare care and the economy as well. I'm also for increasing minimum wage. I think that the clearest, oh, my gosh, the best depiction is looking at what has happened now that we're not receiving $600 uh, weekly for those that are on unemployment. So that's $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. So that's. And I'm not even sure that that's a livable wage, but I support doing research to determine what is a livable wage and how often we need to increase the livable wage to make sure that people are able to sustain themselves. Well,
0: and I think it's it's also fitting that you've talked about before how you'll make your own sort of system around you. You know, you don't need it to you don't need to enter an existing one, you'll build your own. And that seems to be kind of how the whole primary and general election is gone. So, I mean, because you're up against both the incumbent, Ben Sass, but then also Chris Sec So, I mean, I don't know if you have any comment on the current state of that or your thoughts on how you've had to sort of forge your own way, even past the primary.
1: You know, I think that the comment that I have on that and the feedback is simply that this is unknown and unexpected to all of us. And so I very much I felt that we ran a very great, a very strong campaign. I ended up with thirty-three thousand votes. I started our. We were doing the work beforehand, but we announced on Thanksgiving. So with the time frame of us actively campaigning, that being cut short with COVID, I thought thirty-three thousand votes was simply amazing. So I had started doing research. And saying, oh, okay, what could we have done differently? I took the time to meet with the elected officials that I maybe didn't have the time to meet with on the campaign. I got so much feedback. And then social media blew up with the whole Chris Janisak issue. And so what was interesting is that on the campaign trail, I thought that we did have some similar uh policies and some similar thoughts and so i thought it would be easy enough for us to have a conversation what has been frustrating is receiving feedback from his campaign manager from his campaign that's completely different from what he's saying publicly to the media and so we are being told we're going to get out of the race we're looking for a date and then we read in the paper or somebody tags us in something that says we'll be on the ballot in november (laughs) like that doesn't that's. What's going on here? Like, I don't play dirty politics, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a straight shooter. Let me know what you are going to do, and then I can judge or or I can at least use that information to do what I need to do and make a plan and formulate a plan off of that data. And so we... It was amazing, The very when this hit the fan on social media, the second call that I got was from Angie Phillips, who said, let's have a conversation. If you wanna do this, I will back you. I think you are the right person. I think you are what we need right now. And statistically, you and I combined got more votes than uh, Chris Janicek, and I said, absolutely. And I wanted to have the conversation with Chris, but I've not been able to, or permitted to, have a, a, a sit-down meeting or, or a phone call with him as of yet. And so what I will say is in this time period that there's so much misinformation that I'm going to stick to what's right and what I know. And what I know for sure is that Nebraskans deserve a candidate that they can believe in. They z- deserve to have hope in the midst of a pandemic. We deserve to have someone with a moral compass. And so I will continue to campaign. I will be in this campaign in this race up until September 1st. I will even be prepared and be in Lincoln on September 1st should he decide to step down so that we can go ahead and add our name to the ballot. However, should Chris Janicek remain the nominee, then we will run in 2024. And so we are making a plan. We have already registered with the FEC to run for 2024. We are committed to this race and we will take four years to campaign to learn what uh, issues are in each specific county and visit these counties several times. I think that the Nebraska Democratic Party was really smart to have a code of conduct. Um, I think that when you sign an agreement with someone, you expect them to follow that. And I look at it like a job description. You know, if he, if this, if you were working anywhere in Omaha, you would have been terminated by now. Uh, it's not. It's illegal. <laughs> it's not behavior. It's unbecoming behavior to a nominee. Yes, but this is something that you can be prosecuted for, and I'm talking about not just the sexual harassment, but the statement of inappropriate touching that came from the Nebraska Young Democrats. Uh, This seems to be a pattern of behavior. The article and the statement that came from Peggy Jones of racism, we are seeing patterns of behavior. Uh, And at this time where people are struggling to even just get dressed every day and to be safe in the pandemic. That's the last thing we need uh, someone who doesn't appear to care about their neighbors.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come talk about your story, your campaign, and then your thoughts on just the, everything that's going on, which just seems to be stranger day after day. So thank you again for doing the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it as well. And I hope that you remain safe in this moment, that you and your family are okay. And I'm wishing you best of luck in surviving this pandemic and may you not be affected.
0: Alicia Shelton is currently running against Senator Ben Sass. She has been endorsed by the Nebraska Democratic Party to replace Chris Janicek on the ballot. As of recording, there is no clear resolution to that conflict. Senator Sass is invited to this show. I have invited him personally, month after month, to no avail. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarvin Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Thank you for listening. I am Tom Noblock.